0: Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, along with Luke Doris. This is podcast number three of 2019, and it is a special one today. We're going to talk about what became a Hurricane Barry, of course, and then we're going to talk about Apollo 11. This week, as pretty much everybody knows by now, I'm sure, is the 50th anniversary of the epic moment when man first walked on the moon. Luke, to this day, when we wonder why something isn't happening, we say... If we can put man on the moon,
1: why? Yeah, why doesn't my phone last longer than a day before I have to put it on another charge? It, yeah, it is. The the benchmark for human uh, ingenuity and technology is 50 years old. It's, it's remarkable.
0: It is. It is. And the fact that here, 50 years later, we're, we talk about it as if it was just yesterday. We really do. We, yeah. we treat it as this epic moment that it was, but it is kind of confounding that there is nothing in between that uh, has replaced it.
1: Yeah, it's like, you know, the Romans, they used to have, I believe this is true, I think I've, this is drawing off memory, mm-hmm. but I think that they had uh, hot water on cruise ships, and then we had the Dark Ages. Right. <laughs> feel-
0: well, and they built the aqueducts. I mean, the aqueducts are some kind of an engineering marvel that's just. Incredible that they could do that to move water to parts of the Roman Empire that that uh, didn't have water without them building this incredible infrastructure, you know. And part of them are still there. I mean, it's uh, it's unbelievable. But that wasn't as much technology as engineering, not to take anything away from it. But but this, uh, you know, is something somewhat modern, and it's incredible. Anyway, we're going to talk with the author of a new book on Apollo 11 and of course the moon program, named James. Donovan. It's a fantastic book. It's the book that Michael Collins, now Michael Collins was the astronaut that stayed in the command module and orbited the moon while Armstrong and Aldrin went down to the moon's surface. And Michael Collins says it's the best book on Apollo that he's ever read. Mm. High praise indeed by James Donovan. And we're going to talk to that author in just a moment. Now, thinking about and remembering Apollo 11 this last month or so has been interesting because I grew up with Apollo. My father worked on the telemetry systems for communicating with the capsule as the Earth was spinning. If you think about the challenges of the time, the Earth is spinning, the uh, capsule and, and the astronauts are heading off to the moon, and then they're going around behind the moon and trying to be sure that Houston and the Cape had communications with that capsule uh, that all had to be built in the 1960s. And anyway, my father uh, worked on that team. And I wrote about the, uh, my experience. With Apollo walking to the end of my street, two and a half blocks down, standing in the ocean and watching it go, and and we're going to have um, have that on local10.com coming up tomorrow, actually the 16th. Today that we're recording this is Monday, July 15th, 2019. If you're listening at some point in the future, you've got to tune into local 10 or check local10.com, the Max Tracker app, or the local 10 weather app. For current information, the good thing is there's not a heck of a lot going on right now. And on localtan.com, you can sign up for the Brian Norcross Talks Tropics newsletter. I'll keep you up to date on what's going on in the tropics. Watch for it whenever there is activity. And uh, that'll be pretty much every day starting August 1st. And, and right now, I've been doing them pretty much every day because we've had uh, Barry to talk about. Speaking of Barry, Luke... Um, it was an unusual storm from the get-go. Kind of came from from your part of the country. <laughs> it's it did very strange.
1: Yeah, typically, you know, we think of tropical cyclones forming off of some disturbance over the water, a tropical wave, whatever. Uh, This one started in Kansas, and what happens in the summertime in the Great Plains is you get these strong thunderstorms, sometimes severe thunderstorm complexes, and they can last for days as these kind of living, breathing uh, systems. And over time, they'll start to spin, and you get something called an MCV, a Mesoscale Convective Vortex, And vortex as in spinning. Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. And they sometimes even resemble a tropical feature when they're not. And Mm -hmm. they have like this circulation and and they'll have an almost eye-like feature. It's not an eye. It just kind of looks like it. Well, anyway, that dude started out in Kansas and traveled all along the plains, parts of the Midwest, and then went to the south and dropped down into the Gulf of Mexico, hit that bathtub of warm water and spent some time there and was able to gain tropical features and eventually become Hurricane Barry. Yeah, it was
0: uh, really unusual, not unheard of, for a system to develop over land and then move over water and develop into a tropical storm or hurricane. But uh, certainly unusual, and I don't remember an MCS coming from Kansas and doing it. I remember other systems developing over Florida or over some kind of nearby land area. But that was uh, very strange. And, you know, the interesting thing was that the models, the computer models, actually picked up on it way in advance of it actually happening. It wasn't like this was some kind of freak, oh, my God, I didn't know this was coming kind of thing. Uh, We actually had it in the forecast, and there was a lot of discussion from uh, from the National Hurricane Center. They, as a matter of fact, did, uh, Eric Blake, one of the hurricane specialists there, put out the discussion where he put the X up over Georgia yeah. and then uh, drew the development area down on the Gulf of Mexico and he said that was one of the most unusual uh, tropical weather outlooks that he's ever made so it was a pretty unusual thing
1: and not only was it picked up on it was well forecast right. as far as you know uh, where it could develop and its intensity too
0: yeah yeah it was you know interesting there's a there's a, uh, a model we'll call it a model it's called the ships. Uh, model, and, and it's an intensity model, and it's a combination of of a dynamic model where it, it uses the physics of the situation, but also it uses some information about past storms. And, and it showed—we uh, look at that to try and figure out how the atmospheric conditions around the system are going to be, and it showed that they were not going to be especially favorable, that the shear was going to stay pretty high— uh, and it showed modest intensification, but the Hurricane Center went ahead and looked at that model along with many others, and came up with this forecast that it would reach hurricane intensity right before landfall. And it's exactly what it did. I mean it was uh, it was quite an amazing success of hurricane forecasting and uh, analysis of the information available from the various models by the specialists at the Hurricane Center.
1: The biggest concern with it has always been the flood, the flood threat that it would bring. And I want to get your thoughts on this because New Orleans got a lot of the attention, um, you know, with the flooded Mississippi or it was already well elevated, the storm surge potential. And New Orleans kind of missed out on it a little bit, um, but this did produce 17 inches and counting in some spots like north of Lake Charles and uh, northwest of Baton Rouge. Um, what are your thoughts on the rain totals and how it panned out there with the flood threat? Well,
0: they, they lucked out uh, because, first of all, these corridors of rain set up, which we knew they were going to do. The models indicated that the exact corridor, was a decent chance it was going to be over New Orleans. As it turned out, it was more one to the west, one or two to the east. Alabama also got a tremendous amount of rain. And we do, we talk about New Orleans because it is such an incredibly vulnerable city, and the Mississippi River was uh, spectacularly high for this time of the summer. Usually the river get, is high in the spring, and then it is much lower in the summer, so there's a lot of room for additional water to come down the Mississippi before it challenges the levees. Well, it turned out that since we didn't have a big corridor of rain where one thunderstorm dumping heavy rain after the other, after the other, after the other, uh, went over the immediate New Orleans area, that that threat didn't happen. But the water is still going to rise in other places. There has been flooding. There were a few more minor levees breached in southern Louisiana. So it's not nothing but uh, but it, I would say that it ended up being in the 50 to 60 percent of what was considered the reasonable worst case in terms of the forecasts uh, at the time. So, so I, I, you know, all we can say is that the science is not perfect. But in this case, it was amazingly good.
1: Yeah, you can't forecast the unforecastable is what Brian always says. <laughs> <Right>. And um, <laughs> trying to pick out where yeah. those uh, interstates of rain are going to set up is it's impossible.
0: Right. And the other thing to come out of this is the UK Met model, which is a model run by the British Met Service. And normally a good model was terrible. Yeah. It kept taking the storm to Houston. And all the other models are over in, in Louisiana, and we keep looking over what's that one doing over there, because that, that's one of the ones that is considered a, a world-class model, but it was terrible. So anyway, we'll put that in our memory bank for this hurricane season for, and see whether that's a consistent problem, because they revise these models every year, and so there's always something in there. Is there a problem, or uh, was it because of this situation? We We don't know the answer to that. So- Anyway, it's an interesting thing, and you know, I was thinking about this hurricane forecasting. It's kind of like Apollo in this this kind of way. We we uh, when Apollo was happening, we believed in the science. As a matter of fact, I, I wrote about this, and if you read my my piece on local10 tomorrow and on Wednesday, you'll you'll hear about it. Um, but you know, we believed in the science. We believed. Uh, my father worked on it. My Neighbors were working on Apollo, and these were, you know, these were solid engineers that were, were you know, we believed in, in their ability to do this, um, but we knew there was significant uncertainty. It's kind of like forecasting a hurricane, right? We we believe in the hurricane science. We can see that for good forecasts are made, but we always know. There's this uncertainty that there's something is going to happen that we haven't
1: foreseen, yeah, and the consequences that would go with both right. of those analogies would be terrible right yes.
0: and uh, in the case of Apollo, the uh, NASA administration put a fifty six percent chance they were going to get the astronauts back
1: oh the guts that those guys had to strap on the front of those rockets and say yeah. eh, better than 50 50 let's do it Yeah, those are it. heroes
0: yeah they, they they were they were just uh, absolutely incredible so uh luke uh, you know think back you've been looking into apollo 11 here and and think back to you know what your understanding of it has been uh and you know as a younger person and, and a person of the younger persuasion, as we say. Uh, you know, what, what's what's your impression of, of Apollo 11 and, and what have you thought about it through your life?
1: Well, we touched on it a little bit earlier with, you know, this, this benchmark of human ingenuity and And technology, really, was from a long time ago. I know that our technology's progressed a lot since then, Mm -hmm. but what do we have to show for it? We have the Internet, but we don't have this moment, Mm -hmm. this incredible moment that occurred uh, like it did in the 60s. And there's this little thing called human error that we factor in just about everything that we do. And I think about Apollo 11 and the innumerable variables that go with that, from the construction of the rocket, from uh, the dance that the... Uh, lunar module had to do to dock back up with the command module just so much going on and and how difficult all that would have been to test and the amount of time that they did it and the precision Mm -hmm. that they did that i mean you're you're unbelievable going to the moon and coming back and, and making that happen. The precision is just off the charts, but when they you were a kid, when you were a kid, what did you, do you remember thinking about it at all? Or was
0: it just, or was it something more in the past? No, it was something in the past and something in the past. Yeah. yeah. That's my, my sense uh, as well. So just a little chronology and then we'll talk to, to the author. And I, I know you'll, you'll all appreciate hearing from, uh, Jim Donovan, uh, So you have to go back. Really, all this starts in 1957. So Apollo would not have happened without Sputnik and the Russians suddenly launching. uh, I say suddenly. Actually, we kind of knew it was coming. Uh, We were trying to launch a satellite. We knew they were trying to launch a satellite. And they launched Sputnik 1 in October of 1957. And I remember, as a, a young kid, the sound on television of that thing going beep, beep, beep. This was the first time there was ever a man-made satellite going around, and it was just sound sending out that tone. Was that scary? It, it, was, it was, well, it was scarier for my parents and the adults, I think, than it was for me as a six-year-old uh, at that time. But it was, you know, there was massive nervousness uh, among the adult community at that time. And then in November, they go and they do it again. They put a dog up there. The Russians put a dog up there, and— uh, showing that they have some atmosphere that they can put in a capsule, and it was a bigger capsule and so forth. And so there was, at that, at that time, the Eisenhower administration was not moving apace with space technology. Uh, Eisenhower didn't think that that it was worth the money, and he was very concerned about the budget and the military-industrial complex and the and the militarization of space and and rocketry, and trying to contain that, and uh, so the United States was behind. But but in January of 1958, so just just a few months after Sputnik, uh, the U.S. did put up a satellite. It was called Explorer, and it actually found the Van Allen radiation belts. That's when they were discovered by that satellite in early 1958. And then in 1961, in January of 61, of course, Kennedy is inaugurated. Well, Kennedy had run on something he called the missile gap, that that the missile gap being that the Eisenhower people and the Republicans had let the Russians get ahead in missiles. Turned out it wasn't totally true in missiles, but it certainly was in satellites. And anyway, he exploited that as part of his campaign. But then uh, shortly after Uh, that happens, Uh, the Russians send Yuri Gagarin into space, and he orbits the Earth. It wasn't just he went into space. He went into space, and he orbited the Earth, and that was in April of uh, 1961, uh, just five days before this Bay of Pigs fiasco where the U.S. supported this invasion of Cuba to take out Castro, uh, which had come out of the Eisenhower administration, but Kennedy signed off on it, and so it was this black eye for the Kennedy administration for the United States. And, and so all that was in the negative column. And then just uh, less than a month after that, Alan Shepard, the first American in space, goes up, but only on a 15-minute flight. So Yuri Gagarin had gone around the Earth and orbited the Earth three times, and uh, Shepard goes up for 15 minutes. And only 20 days later, Kennedy announces that we're going to go to the moon. But the reason for it was that they talked about it. This was not just a, a quick thing. Kennedy had Vice President Johnson at the time lead a team to figure out what we could do and could we do it technologically? Could we, could we uh, beat the Russians at something? But they were so far ahead in these uh, relatively easy things of putting people in Earth orbit that the decision was that we had to go do the hard thing so that we could meet them there, because they didn't have a moon rocket yet. We didn't have a moon rocket. They didn't have a moon rocket. But the thing is, their Earth-orbiting rockets were better than ours. So if we, we needed to start at, at GO, where we were both on the same technological path. And so that's what drove the moon uh, mission. And in, in July of 61, Gus Grissom goes up for 15 minutes and then in august of 1961 herman uh, titov orbits 17 times so it was a very freaky time that the russians were clearly ahead of what we were doing uh, but but you know kennedy had laid down this marker and uh, that put uh, th- put things into action nasa geared up they said uh, calling all engineers we need america's best engineers to come make this happen And my father was one of the people that answered the call. And we moved to Florida, um, to uh, East Central Florida in the Melbourne area. And and, uh, he was part of that team. 400,000 administrators and engineers and technicians and support people uh, were hired. Astronauts were recruited. There had been seven original Mercury astronauts for the first program. But then the second group in 1962 included a guy named Neil Armstrong. And he flew, had flown 200 different types of aircraft in, in his life in, in, uh, as a test pilot, as a research test pilot. So he went 4,000 miles an hour in a rocket plane. Uh, I mean, all kind of crazy things. And he was renowned as an extraordinary uh, guy, Just uh, um, which we didn't know that at the time, by the way. We didn't really learn about Neil Armstrong because he was just one of a whole— Class, and then on the day that Apollo 11 was going to go, July 16th, 1969, I walked to the end of my street. It was two and a half blocks, and kind of stood in the ocean. It was a perfectly clear July day, and I watched it go. And you could see it sitting at the Cape, 25 miles away, clear as day. You could see its stage and the the, you know the whole thing. And uh, so so I wrote about that. And like I said, that'll be on local 10. Com. And as I mentioned, there's a fantastic new book out about Apollo called Shoot for the Moon, The Space Race and the Extraordinary Voyage of Apollo 11. Extraordinary there being the key word. Besides the technological achievement, there are so many human stories of bravery and just really smarts that the story probably uh, wouldn't make a good novel, I don't think, because it's so improbable. It really is a great American story. So here's my talk with James Donovan, the author of Shoot for the Moon. Jim, this podcast is generally about weather and especially hurricanes, but Apollo 11 was such an extraordinary triumph of science, ingenuity, and the human spirit that we thought that people who regularly listen would relate to the story. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Your book just magnificently captures that spirit and intensity and intelligence and the raw energy of the people that made it happen. Uh, what drew you to Apollo 11?
2: You know, I grew up with the manned space flight. And when I was a kid, I got into reading through science fiction. I love science fiction. As a matter of fact, I pretty much didn't read anything else until I got to high school. <laughs> uh, and, you know, at the same time, in the 60s, this kind of real science fiction was happening. You know, going to the moon and who knows where else and it just captured my imagination as it did so many other kids and you know it must have lodged back there in my head somewhere because after i finished my previous two books one was on the battle of the little bighorn a terrible glory the other uh the blood of heroes was about the battle of the alamo i really felt uh, i wanted to tackle a 20th century topic and especially one maybe in the second half where I could actually talk to some people who had experienced and been a part of, uh, whatever I was going to write about. And somebody suggested at some point, Hey, how about, you know, Apollo 11 the space race. And, you know, I put it away in my head because I thought there'd be a lot written about it, but it kept on popping back up into my consciousness. And I thought that meant something. And I started to take a look at what was out there in books. And there were a decent amount of books out there on the space race and Apollo 11 and the Apollo program, but there wasn't one that was the one I wanted to read. And also I thought a lot of other people might want to read that concentrated on the people because this is a story, Mm -hmm. as you know, that, you know, can be overwhelmed by the science and technology, which is so integral to the story. And a lot of writers who tackled this. The science and technology just was what dominated it, and it was very difficult to get through, and I wanted to do a story about people.
0: Yeah, I can see that. Uh, I see that in the book. So be- before we get to the science and c- technology and the really, almost uh, to this day, unimaginable set of circumstances that came together to put man on the moon, yep. I want to reflect on just the idea of time for a moment, because I learned from you that at Cape Canaveral, the day that Apollo Eleven took off was Charles Lindbergh, the first man to fly nonstop across the Atlantic in 1927. So that between Lindbergh's flight in 1927 and man landing on the moon was 42 years, and now it's been 50 years since Apollo Eleven. It kind of blows your mind. I mean, uh, the way time it has, does point- has gone, yeah. <laughs>
2: It does mine, too, to think that the first man to cross the Atlantic, uh, you know, was at the July, that July 16th, 1969 launch of Apollo uh, 11. And, you know, think about it. His flight wasn't too far um, past the first flight ever in 1903 by the Wright brothers. So, you know, talk about you know, Zoom, everything just kind of advancing so quickly and even more and more quickly. And now 50 years later, here we are. And, you know, sadly or oddly or however you want to think about it, we, no one on Earth has sent a human being beyond what they call low Earth orbit, you know, from about 100 miles to uh, a couple thousand or so. Uh, No one has ventured past that in 50 years. And at one point after... Uh, were actually during near the end of the Apollo program, sixty-nine, seventy, seventy-one. Uh, they NASA had plans. Werner von Braun, you know, mm-hmm. the uh, the master engineer. Yeah, we'll talk
0: about him. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. Well, he. I mean, he and NASA had plans uh, to maybe get to Mars by the eighties. Yeah. And of course, all that takes a lot, a lot of money, and that all came falling down.
0: Yeah. All <laughs> that has to come together. Well, next to Lindbergh on the day that Apollo took off july 1969 was a guy named claude ryan that you talk about tell us how he fits into the story yeah claude ryan
2: when uh Lindbergh, uh you know he was just a, a mail carrier back in the you know late 20s early 30s and uh decided that he was going to pursue that that Ortigue prize that was offered by a An Italian-American restaurateur in New York for the first person to go from New York to Paris or Paris to New York, and he figured out. I mean, lots of other people were interested in this, and they were building these huge planes with you know grandiose plans, and they'd have a whole crew, and they'd carry champagne and all sorts of stuff. And he thought the smartest thing to do would be a very light, you know, a light plane, barely big enough for one person. And, you know, with a good engine, and he worked with uh, Ryan, um, Ryan's company in California, about this. And I, I think it was built for, like, something like $2,000. I can't remember the exact. This is uh, the spirit of St. Louis. Yeah, the spirit of St. Louis. <laughs> right. And flew it straight across country, stopped St. Louis to thank his backers, you know, the men who mm-hmm. paid for it. Right. And then flew to uh, New York, New Jersey, and, um, I mean, Long Island, and, you know, waited for the right time. And took off Claude, Claude Ryan, and then Claude Ryan, uh, like you said, 42 years later, was there to watch the launch of Apollo 11, uh, sitting next to Lindbergh because his company had built a small uh, part for for Apollo 11, the spacecraft.
0: Wow, it's just uh, amazing confluence that to think that all these things come together that we seem like such basic technology, that seem like such basic technology and such, you know, high technology, all the, the same people involved. All right. Everybody knows that uh, Neil Armstrong was the first man on the moon, and maybe they know that he was the commander of the moon mission who saved the day when they actually uh, went to land on the moon. But he was far from a one-trick pony. I mean, there was an awful lot more to Neil Armstrong than that. You called him a hotshot pilot. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, you know,
2: all these early Apollo astronauts, let's say uh, at that time there were about 50 Apollo astronauts uh, training for various missions uh, as the actual prime crew or the backups, things like that. So they had to have a lot of them because they had a lot planned. Um, They were all, you know, alpha males, great pilots. And uh, the first couple uh, groups of astronauts, and, and after the first Mercury 7, Uh, men were picked in 1959. He was in the second class, Armstrong was, in 1962. And that class was also made up of, as was the uh, the Mercury uh, class, uh, test pilots. After that, they relaxed it, so you just had to have lots and lots of time in jets, but you didn't have to be a test pilot. So uh, he was a superb pilot, fantastic, and, you know, he just had this knack of... uh, you know, it was smarts, it was luck, it was cool, grace under pressure, coolness under under fire of getting out of jams in during the Korean War. He, uh, on a bombing mission, um, you know, he was in his, I think it was an F-9 jet, and uh, a, most of one wing was torn off by a low cable in a valley, and he somehow made it back a few hundred miles to, uh, you know, friendly territory and bailed out a couple times in the 60s when he was piloting certain things Uh, once he was piloting, I can't remember what kind of, it was a B-25 or B-30 or something Uh, an entire propeller just ripped off and flew by him in the cockpit and uh, he nursed uh, that thing back to the base he just, you know I've got to think, and of course then there were. Gemma Eight, you know, uh, where they docked with a target vehicle and a GINA, which was a, a booster they sometimes used as a target vehicle for these Gemini spacecraft to practice rendezvous and docking. And they started spinning around, he and his uh, crewmate, Dave Scott, and they couldn't stop it. And they were uh, spinning all sorts of ways at more than one revolution a second. And they were about to black out when somehow he knew, somehow by touch, he, he reached up for the, the right, you know, switches to push that got him away from the Agena and stopped the spinning. And, um, you know, they escaped with their lives. Yeah, it was amazing and it was instinct
0: and, and, and knowledge and everything else that came yeah, together that allowed them to save all, themselves. It smarts,
2: smarts, yes. smart knowledge, experience, and just a certain coolness that, you know, you just, you know, uh, some people just, only a few people can develop. And I have to think all that had something to do with his being picked as uh, the first, the commander of the first mission that was at least planned to uh, try to land on the moon. Because most astronauts I talked to, interviewed, you know, very few of them thought that would be the one to land. There were there were still too many unknowns. Right. You know, they were Amazing. landing. When you think about it, of course, this this weird-looking contraption that had nobody had ever landed because you couldn't approximate those conditions in on Earth. Um, very spindly little thing that could only work in a vacuum because it was so frail. And to land this thing on the surface of uh, another world that no human had ever walked on in strange conditions where, you know, you just throw out aerodynamics. So they thought something would go wrong um, or be found to be a problem, and maybe it would be Apollo 12 or 13 that would actually land.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, they really, even looking at it today, almost rushed it there toward the end. So let's go back to the very beginning. And you mentioned this because no American was going to land on the moon or get to the moon if uh, America didn't have a rocket powerful enough to launch the manned machines high enough and fast enough to escape Earth's gravity. So it's really kind of a uh, of another era side story to Apollo, that there's a fairly straight line that you can draw from the spectacular, almost unbelievable Saturn V rocket that powered Apollo and the Nazi missiles that rained on London in the Second World War. Talk about the Germans that were involved uh, with Apollo and their leader, Wernher von Braun, uh, the, a controversial but charismatic, somewhat heroic but but uh and was a very complicated person that was so key to all this. Werner von braun,
2: a very fascinating man, uh, born you know of a into a very well to do family, which is what the Vaughan is in the middle. Um, as a very young boy, he was just fascinated, of course, by By rockets and, like lots of young men, just wanted to build these rockets to go into outer space. And uh, he wanted to fly them because he he liked flying airplanes. He was tapped by the German army in the early 30s to help them develop uh, missiles and rockets. And, of course, we know who came into power in the Mm mid-30s, and he continued with them. And, of course, early on, uh, nobody really took Hitler very seriously or thought he was much of a threat to the world as, as he came to be. But Von Brown, um, was very young and pretty soon in charge of their entire, uh, operation that was building a weapon. It would be the first guided ballistic missile long range to be built. And, uh, towards the end of the war starting in 44 and going into 45, they started launching these things. They went about 200 or so miles. They hit targets in Belgium and, of course, England, thousands were, were sent and, and several thousand people died and many more were injured. It wasn't this big wonder weapon that uh, Hitler was hoping for that was going to change the the tide of the war. And towards the end of the war, von Braun and his people, his, his team of uh, several hundred people, uh, technicians, engineers, and a few scientists, they realized that, uh, you know what? They weren't going to win the war, mm-hmm. and all they really wanted to do was uh, build rockets, build rockets, and go to outer space. Although, of course, they had made this Faustian bargain with the Germans and Hitler, and uh, to make the V two. But um, they they had a, uh, some secret meetings discussing who did they want to work with, and of course, surrender to to continue their their dreams and their aims. And they were terrified of the Soviets, who were. Uh, not happy about Stalingrad and uh, uh, they decided France and England did not have the the money and they they knew the Americans and liked the Americans and uh, right a couple days after uh, you know the Germans surrendered they volunteered I mean (laughs) excuse me they surrendered to the Americans and Uh were quickly whisked away about 127 uh, people on his team and von brown to america on five-year contracts because the uh, war in the pacific was not over and they thought they might be needed there but they stayed on and taught the americans everything they knew about rockets and for about five or ten years and of course uh, he helped he was in charge of the first american uh, satellite artificial satellite explorer which was Launched in um, early night in January 1958, it was a response to the Russian uh, first artific- artificial satellite Sputnik, and he was kind of an American hero by that time. Believe it or not, even though he was a former Nazi, he had been forced to join the the SS also, although he never took that seriously.
0: And the Americans set um, him up and, in in Huntsville, right? And he showed up on Disney well, yeah. Disney uh, shows and. It uh, yeah, was quite a exactly. quite a a uh, kind of comparison, or or uh, just the difference between his background and and then his American persona in the fifties.
2: He was a fascinating character. Uh, yeah, once they got to um, in the early fifties, uh, he started writing, collaborating on these um, articles for Collier's magazine, a very big uh, uh, and popular magazine in the fifties. Uh, A series of articles. One of them was called Man Will Get to Space Soon and all these fantastic looking illustrations by some great illustrators. And and then in the mid-50s, he started uh, working with, because of those, he was getting very popular. Actually, he was like Mr. Space Mm -hmm. and um, the seer of space, I think Time called him. And they, uh, he started working with Walt Disney on these uh, several specials about outer space that were hugely popular. Something like a third of all Americans watched uh, watched watched some of these specials, and um, he was, you know, probably the best known proponent of space travel and manned space travel uh, in the United States at that time.
0: It was so ironic and, because he spoke with a German accent, and it wasn't yeah, he, that yes, long since World War II, right? I mean, people people not, uh, Americans and people in the West didn't have. Yet uh, a rosy picture of of Germany and Germans in general, but yet he transcended that with his uh, vision of space.
2: Good point because he really did. Um, he was actually fairly well liked, I believe. and uh, working for the army and after 58, um, he was uh, kind of an American hero in a way for for you know getting that rocket up, getting that uh, satellite up there in response to the uh, Russians. So when NASA was formed in 58, and they were given a mandate and plenty of uh, funding to at least, uh, you know, get somebody up in space, orbit the Earth. At that time, it, right then, they didn't know what else was going to happen, but they needed that. Well, they needed somebody. Uh, they needed rockets to get the men, get, you know, these astronauts up there. He happened to be, you know, working on missiles and rockets. He was the best guy to do it. So they made a deal. He came over to NASA, worked for NASA from then on. And, of course, in a few years, early 60s, they decided, um, courtesy of uh, JFK's, hmm. President Kennedy's moon speech in May 1961, right. that we were going to send a man to the moon to beat the, beat the Russians in the space race. And then he became even more valuable because he was at the time working on a massive uh, booster a rocket uh, called the Saturn V for for the Army, which of course now was for NASA to get uh, the astronauts into the moon. Uh, still the largest uh, rocket and ever to, to to work and get off the moon. 7.5 million pounds of thrust total. Just, uh, just an unbelievably ungodly uh, uh, machine. And I've never seen, I never got to see a, a launch of one, but I heard it was just something to behold. You know, 10 miles away, everything
0: shook. I was 25 miles away the morning that Apollo 11 uh, went up, and and you felt the vibrations in the Earth, and the sound wave uh, came about two minutes after the, the launch. Uh, I remember <laughs> it, was, it was an experience. You mentioned the Russians. Uh, from the time that Kennedy announced that we were going to the moon in 61 to that very day that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were sitting on the moon, in the lunar module in 1969 i think it's fair to say and do you agree that apollo wouldn't have happened like it did and it wouldn't have happened on the schedule it did if it weren't for the russians you agree with that
2: absolutely i think everyone agrees with that i mean that was the whole reason for the space race and and the, the massive amount of money that uh, congress budgeted and you know for uh, this, the the space program at one time in the mid 60s At its height, it was almost 5% of the federal budget. Now it's something like 0.5% or even less. Um, It was because the the Russians, um, you know, we forget now, or a lot of us have Mm -hmm. forgotten or or never knew, how serious the stakes were in the late 50s, early 60s. I mean, the Cold War was going on. and It may have been a Cold War, but it was still a very serious war for kind of the hearts and minds of the entire uh, world. There were dozens and dozens of... um, non-aligned nations at the time, uh, lesser developed nations, many of them uh, recently decolonized, who were kind of casting about. They didn't know, know which side of this global tug of war they would lend a hand to because they wanted, of course, to be on the winning side and they wanted to be on the side that would benefit them the most. And at the time, communism, its defects and weaknesses were not as apparent as they are now. And they were on kind of a winning streak. Uh, at one time in the mid-60s, uh, the Rus- Russian GDP was was higher than uh, the United States. So, uh, you know, it, it was a matter of showing a lot of these countries who were not part of either the War- Warsaw Pact or NATO, um, you know, that we were the stronger and best way to go. And, uh, you know, what's, what's the most obvious part of that is... Uh, you know, the most visible is, is a space program.
0: Right. The Vietnam War was really fought uh, about essentially that, right. Was a, was the whole domino theory that if you let the communists take hold, then, then they'll take over more and more and more and more. And this was another way of combating the idea of communist ideology and, and Russian power, uh, Soviet power. You're exactly
2: right. Because yeah, because um, one, there were two parts. One was, uh, national security of course immediate security Mm -hmm. uh we couldn't let the russians dominate the the uh, skies above us um but also it was a thing they called prestige which is still Mm -hmm. talked about today but back then it was really talked about because prestige is what you and i have been discussing about a, a nation's uh influence or or strength uh and Oddly enough, what really scared them was right after, in the weeks and months following Sputnik, and maybe a few other early Russian successes. Uh, polls in Western Europe showed, you know, the Russians' prestige just zooming up, and the Americans really not doing well at all. So uh, it was that obvious, and this was, and a few of those were in France, one of our strongest, staunchest allies. So you can imagine what how other countries that weren't. As aware of this and and as developed we' are thinking about um you know what these space triumphs of the Soviets meant they might be you know the 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 wagon that hits their star to or, right. the, or the star to mm-hmm. hits their wagons to
0: right well i I remember you know kind of vaguely my my parents and the nervousness that I got from them uh, in the late 50s and early 60s. So let's go to 1961. The Russians are orbiting cosmonauts around the globe, and America has managed to get one astronaut into space for 15 minutes. That was Alan Shepard on the first Mercury flight. And President Kennedy decides that we should go to the moon before the decade was out. Was there at that point even foreseeable technology, or uh, was this really more political, and and he was really rolling the dice. I mean, to what, what degree did it seem even possible when he made that announcement in 1961?
2: Yeah, well, it, it was a fascinating confluence of, of many things, and here's what happened. Uh, you know, just before Shepard went up, um, the Bay of Pigs happened, and, of course, we looked, you know, Kennedy fresh into office, had egg on his face. The United States did not look good for backing that uh, just goofy plan to invade mm-hmm. uh, Cuba and take it over. That didn't work. And combined with all the uh, space triumphs, those early space triumphs of uh, of the Russians, he felt that the United States had to do something to show that we were better than the Russians in, in some areas. And he had a, a few private meetings with his top advisors and LBJ, Lynn Baines Johnson, Mm -hmm. his uh, vice president, and said, what can we do? I mean, what can we do to show that we are superior in science and technology? And several things were popped, you know, came up. But uh, one that um, came up was going to the moon and circling the moon or maybe even landing something on it. So he told LBJ, find out for me if this is possible, if we can do this and when lbj e. took about a week 10 days talked to tons of scientists uh, businessmen nasa all sorts of experts and gave him um uh, in less than 10 days gave him a report that said yes it's possible we can do it probably by 67 68 69 it would take a lot of money but we can do this the good thing is it will level the play the playing field with the russians because they don't have big boosters and you need a huge booster to do that a huge rocket of course and so the the field was level all these little triumphs they had these smaller ones didn't didn't help them that much and if we marshalled uh, all the forces that America america could muster at once and we all worked together we could do it and so that's when he gave that may may speech and said i believe we should do this it was deemed um, a high priority enough um item that Congress, both sides of the aisle voted funding unanimously, and fortunately uh fortunately for NASA because it takes a lot of money to uh, send humans into space.
0: Yeah, he had LBJ on his side, and if anyone knew how to to run congress it w- it was lbj. All right. So the the decision to the moon is is made. NASA has to figure out how in the world would you do that? And I guess in science fiction and in our minds, we tend to think that the way you would do it is a rocket takes off from Earth and it flies to the moon and it lands on the moon and you get out and do your business and then you come back. But but, uh, pretty early on, uh, there were thoughts that that wouldn't work. And they ended up with this really complex space ballet that they did involving all these different um, moves and parts. And, and uh, I thought it was fascinating. Uh, you described the, the process of elimination, really, that ended up with the uh, system that they ended up using, which probably was the only one that was gonna work.
2: Right, well, you know, a lot of it was, was, was two things, of course, impacted all this time and money. Uh, they had enough money, but they wanted to get it done by the end of, of the decade, 1969, 1970. And there were actually arguments about, is the end of the decade the end of 1969, or is it the end of 1970? Anyway, fortunately, we never had to like worry about that. But um yes, they only had the vaguest idea of how they were going to do it. They knew uh, this is important, that they didn't have to come up with new science. All the science was there. It was just a matter. It was an engineering problem. Of course, mm-hmm. about 10,000 engineering problems. Right. But when there's an engineering problem, um, it tends to get fixed. If you've got enough engin- good engineers. <clears throat> Let me tell you, I have so much more respect for engineers now after working on this book, because that's who got most of this done. Tens of thousands of engineers. And worse, they had they had to figure out you know roughly how are we going to do this how are we going to get there and get back because just as important as as getting there was right. getting back safely and everybody at first or most of most of the people at NASA and other places at first were all for just building like you know you see read about in comic strips or or see in movies a gigantic rocket that launches from the earth and goes to the moon and backs down onto the uh, the surface of the moon and then takes off again whenever, you know, they need to leave. Well, it's not quite that easy uh, when they saw, when they study this more and more. I mean, you,
0: know, you do you the calculations. Two, three, <laughs> yeah. And you figure oh, out ca- how big the rocket has to be and how could you even make that work on the moon and all these other problems.
2: Yeah. How are you going to back up, you know, mm-hmm. you can do it just by by eyesight. I mean, they had some basic computers, but, you know, uh, they didn't know, Uh, the surface of the moon very well. I mean, there was a a man, a professor at Cornell, Thomas Gold, who insisted that the moon surface was, you know, very, a very deep kind of cloud of dust. And anybody that tried to land on it would just disappear into this dust. And some people believed him. After a while, we realized, you know, with, with other programs like Ranger and Orbiter, that that wasn't the, the truth. But, um, uh, at the time, 1961, 62, we weren't sure of anything. So that's mm-hmm. that's that became more and more unlikely, logistically speaking, a massive one. Another one, another plan they had was sending lots of uh, <clears throat> shipments up to a, 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 like a moon base. Uh, I mean, not a moon base. A uh, space I mean, station, essentially. Um, a space station orbiting the Earth and then building it there and then sending it <clears throat> all sorts of problems there. How are you going to build it. Nobody was exactly sure, but there was one guy, John Hobolt, uh, an engineer um, at NASA who had an idea, not his originally, but he was a real proponent of this, of using, uh, sending a rocket there um, and using, employing a kind of mothership that would circle the moon. And while one or two men in a much smaller uh, vehicle would drop down to the moon's surface and do whatever they were going to do, and then come back to the mothership, which would return to Earth. And the more they looked at this, uh, the more they realized uh, there were significant weight savings, which was, which is very important when you're launching things. At first, people were horrified. A lot of people were horrified by the thought, because as you mentioned, there were several intricate uh, techniques that they had to employ to do this, like rendezvousing, which is getting close to Uh, something else, another, whatever, orbiting uh, uh, a celestial body, and then uh, docking, which of course we know what docking is, and just, you know, maybe even uh, spacewalking, EVA, extravehicular activity, which might be necessary. All these things, we had never done any of this stuff, and they were terrified of something going wrong 240,000 miles from Earth, where there was no chance of rescue, and the thought of american dead astronauts just circling the, the moon was just horrifying and, and nobody could even look at this uh lunar orbit rendezvous uh idea uh kind of calmly uh, although finally they they got to that point and um they adopted that and that's what happened
0: yeah it's really amazing you described the the intricacies of just docking two spacecraft uh together in space it, you know these days we just think okay, they go up there and dock, but it's really much more <laughs> more complicated so let's let's skip ahead uh, I mean there was the the horrible just uh, unimaginable tragedy of what we call today Apollo one in nineteen sixty seven there was a management change partially at nasa the the contractor North American aviation became North American Rockwell uh, uh, had a big management change and so there was a delay in in uh, getting the command module, the spacecraft uh, that, that the astronauts were going to go in, getting that right and safer and so forth. But in the middle while all that was going on, they finally got the, the big Saturn V ready uh, to launch, and Van von Brown wanted to launch stage one and then test uh, stage two and then test stage three. But uh, NASA said, no, we're not going to do it that way we're going to stack them all up and just shoot it off and see what happens because I guess, because we're running out of time. Uh, That, that was, was that just guts? Uh, You know, they were up against the clock and and they said, we're going to roll the dice here. Or, or was that, was that, uh, you know, what was that? It's is very amazing. Yeah, that was,
2: yeah. And no, it is. It's an interesting part of the whole story because von Braun and his German team, uh, you know, very methodical, like to work Mm -hmm. incrementally and very safe. And, you know, you look at what happened, proofs in the pudding, nothing ever went wrong with a Saturn, Yeah, with a Saturn vehicle. They always worked fantastically. But if he had done that, you know, oh, we're going to try something new, you know, do this and this. I mean, it, it, they wouldn't have had time. They would have had to build too many Saturn fives. So George Lowe, uh, one of the top brass at NASA, had the idea, no, I don't think we should do that. When we have some new things to try, let's put them all together, especially if it's we're not talking about manned vehicles or manned launches missions at this point. They were unmanned and there's no reason not to. Uh, so that was called all up testing. And that made a big difference. They could skip a few launches because they tried several new things in each mission, unmanned mission. Mm-hmm. So that was, uh, you know, Apollo two, three, four, five, six. Um, that finally uh, they decided that it was man rated, meaning it was safe for humans uh, after six. And of course, that led to um, October, I believe it was. Yes, October 1968 and Apollo 7, the first manned space mission of uh, using the Saturn V. And uh, they went up and orbited the Earth for uh, 11 or 12 days. It was kind of a shakedown cruise as to borrow a phrase from uh, maritime use. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was good enough. So we know what happened in December, Apollo 8.
0: Yeah, so they d- decided. So so let's skip ahead because it's not that, that nothing happened in Apollo 8, 9, and 10, although Americans uh, became a little less interested, uh, I guess. But And I, I can remember that, actually, which seemed amazing to me because I was living not far from Cape Canaveral. So... So we were certainly you know, highly aware. But in that period, while Apollo uh, 8, 9, and 10 are, are up and, and the program is moving along, the decision comes down on who uh, is going to, in theory, if it all goes well, be the first man on the moon. How did that get decided?
2: Well, uh, a former Mercury astronaut named Deke Slayton had been appointed in charge of uh, astronaut operations and the astronaut office. And he, at first this was just a sop to give him because uh, he had a slight heart palpitation and never got a Mercury flight and never it looked like he never was gonna fly again. Although he actually, after his heart palpitations uh, stopped, he became part of Apollo Soyuz. But um, he became quite powerful and he's the one who decided using various variables and reasons, uh, who would be named, you know, the prime crew of each mission. And usually, and of of course, there was always a backup crew, and usually the backup crew would rotate. Three missions later would be the prime crew. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had been the uh, backup crew um, for Apollo 8. And during Apollo 8's mission, they were still... um, out in space, they hadn't returned yet. Deke Slayton t- told uh, Armstrong, "I want you to be the commander for Apollo 11. You know, three missions down, down the row, and asked him about, um, you know, I want you going to be able to work with Buzz Aldrin because Buzz was kind of a, uh, he was kind of an odd duck. Um, he wasn't uh, that well liked by a lot of other astronauts because he was a." his own man. He was very different. Mm-hmm. March was a different drummer and they wanted to get another, uh, uh very good astronaut in there in the mix uh, with Mike Collins as the, uh, command module pilot. Armstrong said, yeah, we can, I can work with them. Buzz will be fine. We have a good working relationship. And so they started training uh, about six, seven months before uh, July, um, for the Apollo 11 mission.
0: Yeah. And, and, uh, and history showed that they did work very, very well together, even though they were very different uh, kinds of personalities. Now, they, they
2: were. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, I mean I've just. Uh, uh, I mean both of them. Neither of them spoke very much, and and uh, it was it was Collins that was sort of the goofball and the the entertainment of that crew. But the guys that, that made that happen and go to the moon that was Armstrong. And Aldrin, that, that, uh, yeah, well, you're, you're right
2: because it was an interesting crew. Some crews were all best friends and they hung out mm-hmm. together and went to lunch together. And as, as I point out in the book, that wasn't this crew. Uh, Mike Collins was affable and very genial, type of self deprecating sense of humor. Uh, reporters and news people loved talking to him because he was just so much fun to talk to, and they got some good lines from him. Armstrong. And Aldrin, of course, very very intelligent man, and Armstrong was was well spoken, but he was quite reticent, mm-hmm. and uh, Aldrin was was even worse. None of them were were extremely comfortable in front of the microphone, although they would get a little better. And Armstrong and Aldrin weren't the best of buddies. They would have to sh- be, you know, share duties at flying the uh, the Apollo lander, and um, and it did work out because. Armstrong was an incredible resourceful cool as a cucumber pilot and Aldrin even though he wasn't called a co-pilot no no astronaut was ever called a
0: co-pilot right he was the uh, pilot acted it. <laughs> yeah yeah
2: he was the lunar i never figured out when i was before i started work on this why the lunar module pilot never ever flew the lunar module right. in all seven uh, seven missions that or eight or nine missions that uh, you know went to the moon right and that's because No astronaut, they decided early, mostly T. Slayton, was ever going to be called a co-pilot. So they called him the lunar module pilot, even though he never, not one lunar module pilot ever, uh, you know, took the controls of the lunar module.
0: And the guy in control was the commander of the Yes, yes, the commander
2: was the control. And Aldrin and every lunar module pilot worked more as a systems engineer, navigator, co-pilot, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of those three. Uh, those three jobs kind of combined together. And he was he did it superbly during yes. the landing, uh, giving Armstrong the information he needed, rate of descent, velocity, altitude, while Armstrong, you know, his eyeballs were glued on this small triangular window in front of him trying to figure out a safe place to land.
0: Yeah, which turned out to be just an incredible adventure. So they launched on July 16th, and uh, the moon Landing ended up being on the twentieth of July, and they had to do it in that time frame. And I always wondered why the launch window was so tight, and you explained that uh, in the book, because they would have had to wait another month if they if they had missed that uh, window. had to do with the right. alignment so, uh, and the sun and everything else, right?
2: Yes, it was for a lot of reasons that we won't name all of them. But <laughs> yeah. They wanted to approach from the east. With the moon behind, I mean the the sun behind them. So all everything on the moon, uh, rocks, bumps, craters, everything was very highlighted, uh, well, um, so they could see shadows and and you know eyeball it and really uh, uh, have a great sense uh, visually speaking of where they were going and and what they were looking at, Um, and that could only be done about once a month. with
0: various other factors. Yeah, like the moon in the right place so they can get there, and mm-hmm. the angles are right, and, and everything else. Okay, so here it is. It's July 16, 1969. The launch goes off perfectly. They go through all these steps of going around the Earth about one and a half times, and they have a, a burn of the rocket and the, the different parts of the, the system fall, fall away, and they're on the way to the moon. They go around the back of the moon, and I can remember this Uh, so clearly how scary it was that they were going to go around the back of the moon and we would lose contact with them for a half an hour and they were going to have to fire a rocket that had to fire perfectly or they would come out of the other side of the orbit of the moon uh, at the wrong angle and then half an hour later they come and and they're right on target. so and everybody is like, okay, all right, ready to go. And now the highest drama, of course, is the descent to the to the moon, especially in those last few minutes. And and you told this story brilliantly. I was on the edge of my seat, and I knew the story. I know the story. I've lived with the story for 50 years. I mean, there's 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 so much to it, from the mysterious computer codes to the dwindling fuel level. But but talk about neil armstrong and just the guts that he showed and the test pilot nerves that that uh, really saved the day some lesser pilot might have crashed that thing on the moon well uh, <laughs>
2: uh, you're right don't you think um, <laughs> yeah i, I think <laughs> it's entirely possible uh, they had a computer the apollo guidance uh-huh. computer there was uh One actually, there were two on the uh, command module, and there was one on the uh, the lunar module, the lander. Um, They were primitive computers, of course, but this was at a time when a main IBM mainframe took up most of a very large room, and Mm -hmm. so this was one of the absolute first portable computers. It was about the size of a briefcase, and get this, it had 72 kilobytes, approximately 72 kilobytes of memory. Yeah, I have an old iPhone 6S, which has millions, millions <laughs> more times more memory. And its uh, processor speed was one megahertz. All
0: right. Anyway. And that was really, that was thing, unheard of, uh, obviously. Yeah. I mean, that was, talk about state of the art. That was the ultimate yeah, it was, state of the and, art.
2: Yes. It was, and it could land them on the moon and, and do some other things, uh, calculate rendezvous and all that stuff using rate of descent, mm-hmm. velocity, altitude. But it didn't know what was on that surface.
0: Yeah, like boulders, I mean, <laughs> for example.
2: Exactly, boulders, craters. And it was about to land them when they were descending towards the end. And, of course, we have to remember they only had about 12 minutes of fuel. And so they had to Which do all this in 12 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, time was ticking away. Right. And it was about to land them uh, on the side of a... About a football-sized crater with large, you know, automobile-sized boulders around it. And he took manual control and scooted over those. And, of course, they were downfield now, downfield mm-hmm. from, um, downrange, excuse me, from their planned landing site, which they had studied, you know, maps of, you know, for hours and hours. And so this was kind of, you know, terra incognita, or rather mm-hmm. luna incognita, right,
0: I suppose. exactly.
2: Uh, and, you know, he was just looking for a, a place to land and Armstrong, and of course, Aldrin was just, just not trying to get in his way, just mm-hmm. telling them, you know, down four feet, uh, ahead, you know, 50 feet. I mean, he was just giving them basics. Armstrong was just looking out the window and there was a man in, uh, and of course, this was after all those alarms. We won't even touch on those crazy right. alarms.
0: Well, and you were. tell that story so well, and I, I never knew the details. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, I know, it's just
2: amazing. Yeah. And then, so there was a there was a man um, I talked to him, Bob Carlton, a flight controller, mm-hmm. in the, the flight control room, mission control at the time, with a stopwatch, and he was keeping track of roughly how much fuel there was, and he was, cry, you know, mm-hmm. yelling out every, you know, 30 seconds.
0: He's the one that says 30 that you hear in the recording, isn't he? Yeah, 30 seconds. 30 seconds, and that meant 30 seconds of fuel, which we didn't know when it was happening what that referred to, but the astronauts knew, Yeah, because NASA
2: always downplayed the dangers, right? right? right, So, and especially after Apollo 204, which became Apollo 1. And uh, Armstrong had figured out, he had decided, you know, given the struts that compress and, you know, only one-sixth gravity, uh, from about forty feet, we're okay if we float down without power, lose power, and mm-hmm. land. Um, yeah, I suppose, but you know, if you're going, if you're not going comp- straight down, if you're still moving forward, uh, you know, you could hit some of your legs could hit and tumble over or get crushed. Or you know, who wanted to do that, right? right. Or even mess with it. Um, fortunately they figured there was somewhere between 15 and 20, maybe a few more seconds, 25 seconds of fuel left when he landed. Mm-hmm. And uh, 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 <laughs> Ar- Aldrin saw a little light, and he said, contact light, which mm-hmm. are the first words said on the moon.
0: Right, first words in contact with the moon, I guess, right? They were still Con- technically not landed at that point, were they? they just had had their big, long stick uh, sticking out that... Uh, it's yeah, totally, those, they, those sensors that stuck right, down from right.
2: every, yeah, just touched it. So at least they had made contact right. and uh, looked like they were going to be okay. <laughs>
0: yeah. So uh, uh, Armstrong uh, gets out, uh, out the door and is on the little porch on the lunar module and steps, actually didn't step onto the moon anymore, jumped onto the moon, I guess, because it didn't really sink in that much. And he said... And we heard them all say it. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And I always thought that Armstrong claimed that he had not said that; that he actually said that's one giant step for a man. But I guess he eventually admitted that that he didn't. Although uh, then I read that somebody did an analysis, and there was maybe a little breath in there, or what well, you mean? You can forgive him for any of this. There's no. No blame here. Right. It's just, but the story has a lot of different directions to it. So what what's the bottom line? Did he say it or he didn't say it? Did he admit well, it or he didn't admit it? Mm-hmm. I've read a lot
2: about this. <laughs> oh boy, is there a lot about this. And originally, at first, he said, well, no, I, I must have said it. So maybe it got lost in the transmission, you know, right. only right. 240,000 miles away, right? right. Um, but you know, they've looked at it and looked at it and, and played it over and slowed it down and speeded up. And, you know, it just doesn't seem like it was ever there. I've actually heard or read an argument that said, well, you know, the where he was brought up, they kind of slur together some words sometimes. So maybe his Midwestern accent, one small step for mm-hmm. man, yeah. you know, I, which I don't believe. I don't think he... I think he just... Didn't say it, and he did admit it later. He said, "Gee, I guess I, I don't. I guess I didn't say it. I, I hope you know people will forgive me and, and grant me, you know, just that little extra, <clears throat> extra article, single, single letter article, um, which of course is needed grammatically for it to make sense. Otherwise, man and mankind are the same."
0: Although you know, when I heard it, it was not at all confusing to me. So I, I think yeah, that the, the people they that they that get wrapped up in the grammar, and yes, man and mankind are the same. That you know, that really never flew with me because I heard it when it happened and I understood exactly what he said. I did too. And I
2: think everybody kind of understood it uh, when he, what he meant because you never saw any kind of controversy uh, early on when, when when it
0: happened. Right. You know. It's so when people um, had the time to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So Jim, I just have one more more question for you. When you think about the dynamic personalities and the heroic work of so many people that made Apollo 11 possible. It's hard, uh, even 50 years later for me, and and I was there, I was too young to be part of it, but I was there. Uh, it's just hard to wrap your head around that all of that happened. And I just wonder after all the research that you did, putting this book together, uh, how it's left you and what you think about uh, the miracle of Apollo. You know, miracle
2: in, in more ways than one. Um, You know, Gene Cernan, who was an astronaut, he was the commander of the last Apollo mission, Apollo 17. Um, Years later, he he put it in an interesting way. He said, President Kennedy reached far into the 21st century, grabbed a decade of time, and slipped it neatly into the 1960s and 70s. -hmm. And, you know, it was almost as if it happened before its time. They did it so fast, as you know. There were more Mm -hmm. than four hundred thousand people involved in this this massive effort. Lots and lots of Americans, yeah, including my father.
0: Yes, (laughs) yeah, Yeah.
2: and um, uh, it it, it almost came before its time. Yeah, Uh, and you know, in the fifty years since, we haven't uh, all that infrastructure is gone. They 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 couldn't do it with a Saturn if 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 they had enough money it's all been forgotten mostly and and gone all the tools uh, the infrastructure uh, um but you know and a lot of people ask me was it worth it and and i think it was worth it for several reasons number one i do think it it helped us win the cold water the cold war mm-hmm. uh number two you know when you look at um what we the what we got the benefits we got from apollo just the the hard benefits uh, from in, in so many areas, from satellites to uh, medicine, instrumentation and miniaturization uh, to fire prevention. It just goes on and on. Materials. Yeah, point,
0: various kinds of materials yeah, and, uh, they had to invent to, to make it possible.
2: Sure. The CAT scan it goes on and on. I think at one time uh, NASA used to keep track. And I think the most recent one I saw a few months ago was um, right about 1900 different commercial uh things came out of not just apollo but 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 nasa um, uh but nasa's work that were converted to commercial products and it would be a far different world um and of course computers good right. gracious uh, it would be a far different world um and not nearly as advanced in most ways i, I don't think if apollo and uh, if apollo had never happened but finally i think maybe as important as the others is, um, Apollo 11, le- our first baby steps off this planet onto another. It was an affirmation of, uh, our identity as explorers, because I think that is in our DNA to explore, to, you know, venture, uh, uh over the next hill into the next valley, or in this case, you know, onto the next world. And I think whatever happens, uh, you know, as long as some part of us is human, I think we will always explore.
0: Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. And in the next decade, we may well, may well go uh, back to the moon. The, the book is called Shoot for the Moon, The Space Race and the Extraordinary Voyage of Apollo 11 by author James Donovan. It's really, really a great book and an honor to have you on our podcast. Thanks very much, Jim.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun.
0: So what do you say, Luke? Uh, amazing, right? Oh, it's this, absolutely incredible. You know, well, it, the best story that we can tell, right? It, it mm-hmm. is. It is. There, there really is no better story. And in the interview, remember, we talked about the key role that Vener von Braun uh, played in Making Apollo possible. This this uh, German guy with the Nazi background, I mean, it's a really complicated story all in and of itself. Well, the Russians, it turned out, had a master rocketeer as well. His name was Sergei Korolev. And he was responsible for a lot of their success. He really knew how to make rockets. He's the one that that made Yuri Gagarin be the first man in space. And and he had designed a giant rocket to compete with the Saturn V. It was called the N1. And it was not quite as tall, but it was, was much more powerful. It was a third to almost a half more powerful than the Saturn V, which was the— most powerful rocket that ever flew. Well, the N1 uh, was was being built, and there are pictures of it sitting there. Well, and then uh, Korolev died in 1966, and the people in the in the Soviet system, they didn't you know they didn't trust anybody. It was a very paranoid system. So the number two people were kind of distant number two, and they couldn't they couldn't really see it through. And so they tried to launch the N-1 four times. They all exploded. One of them exploded and blew up the whole launch pad. Um, and it was the biggest explosion up to that time besides a nuclear explosion. No kidding. When that uh, N-1 exploded, yes. So they never could launch it. And But they did launch uh, a, a satellite or a... a um, uh, what would you call the thing? A lander, a lunar lander, and they launched it right before Apollo launched that July of 1969. And if you go back and look at the newspapers at the time, they talk about Luna 15 and how that uh, might get the moon rocks back to Earth before Apollo. That was the idea. And it, it ended, and then there was the whole talk about is it going to interfere with Apollo? And. Uh, like communications wise? Communications wise or get in the way or some kind of. Thing and it turned out that unbeknownst to anybody, uh, there the US government talked to somebody who got a back channel to the Russians and where they were assured that they weren't going to do that. But Luna 15 was designed to land on the moon and grab rocks and come back to Earth. That was the idea. It ended up crashing into the moon, uh, they, it came at the wrong angle and it ran into a, a mountain essentially. And uh, they were about 500 miles. That was about 500 miles from where Aldrin and Armstrong were walking on the moon at the time that crashed.
1: At this, would it have it, been at the same it, time? Same time.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: <laughs> right, it's like almost celestial chicken too. Yeah. It could have been if that. It, you know, it could they, have been. I mean, the moon's a big place,
0: right? Yeah. Uh, but but anyway, so that was that was uh, an amazing aspect to it. All these different things uh, all came together at the same time. So uh, after, you know, you probably thought more about Apollo 11 in the last uh, few weeks than in the rest of your life put together. So so what's your your impression?
1: Well, it is, yeah. It's just (laughs) something that I grew up with. It's always, it's been there. Um, You know, it's it's marvelous Mm -hmm. and fascinating, but. It's hard to believe almost. It is, especially (laughs) since, you know. The people of the time had that moment where the world stopped and everybody looked up. Everybody, you know, they experienced this incredible feat that occurred. We haven't had that. You Mm -hmm. know, there's not been a single time. Other, you could say 9/11, that was it. But that's a tragedy. That's not. That's not an achievement, uh, where the world stopped and everybody shared this this big moment. So, I guess we just haven't been intimate with it. It's technology and scientifically, the greatest thing that we've ever done is mankind. Um, but it's just there. It's just been yeah. there. You just grow up with it. I yeah. guess you're, you're it's like air. It's fantastic. We <laughs> love it, but you're pretty used to it.
0: Yeah. You know, and, and we forget when we're talking about Apollo and, and all the technology uh, that it really was a tumultuous time, right? Vietnam was going on. On average, about a thousand American young men were being killed in Vietnam in 1969, uh, the battle for civil rights. Was going on. I mean, there had been massive fires in American cities in 1967 and 1968, where huge parts of cities burned, and and uh, you know African Americans were asserting their rights to as to be full American citizens. Still in 1969, and it was the same summer as Stonewall in New York, where even though that wasn't a national movement yet, but you know, gay New Yorkers were standing up uh, for their rights and. Some four hundred thousand people, young people, showed up at Woodstock, at the Woodstock Music Festival in the little town of Bethel, New York, and that was only a few weeks after Apollo. And, you know, and that was sort of young people staking their claim to their version of America in the future, while my father and the people that were working on Apollo were still wearing their short-sleeve white shirts with black ties, little Mm -hmm. narrow black ties, you know, and going off and doing this incredible thing. So it was it 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 was such an incredibly tumultuous time um, that uh, Apollo at at the time, you know, made everybody stop in the midst of this this sort of chaos in the in the world and the country. Uh, so it it really it, it was remarkable on many many levels including the social level
1: and is it seems like it's all a proxy for the cold war it's a way to bat, to to wage a war without firing a, a bullet where the winner comes out kind of the the technological leader but really everybody wins because there is no war, and uh, the stakes have kind of been placed.
0: Well, and there was another consideration, which we, you know, we talked about there uh, with Jim Donovan, and that was who was going to win in the philosophical arena of what's the best system. And so in, in a way, that was part of the Cold War. Is, is uh, There was concern that, that coming in second place would be um, a, more, a morally more difficult or philosophically more difficult argument when you're talking to non-aligned countries in Africa and, and Asia and, and so so forth. So it was a big, it was a, a big, big deal. It was, in, it was uh, an incredible time. If you have anything you'd like to contribute and uh, like us to talk about on the podcast, um, send an email. It's weatherpod at wplg.com, weatherpod at wplg.com. Now, next week, we have two podcasts one with uh, Dr. Jack Bevan, Hurricane Specialist at the National Hurricane Center extraordinaire, who was one of the uh, researchers and the main author on the uh, hurricane report about Hurricane Michael, where they upgraded it to a category five. So we're going to talk to Jack, he and, and Stacy Stewart, another hurricane specialist at the Hur- Hurricane Center did one, I, I think, one of the best uh, hurricane reports uh, ever done on Hurricane Michael. So we'll talk to Jack, and we'll talk with Jared Moskowitz. So we're going to have two separate podcasts. Uh, Jared is the relatively new director of the Florida Division of Emergency Management, appointed by a Florida governor. And we'll talk to him about Hurricane Michael recovery and evacuations and traffic issues for Irma and everything else. He's a South Florida guy, very familiar with what happens here whenever we have a hurricane. So, That's all coming up uh, next week. Uh, But this week, it's all about Apollo 11. You'll see more on local10.com. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, talking to you next week uh, about the, the outcome of that. So for now, I'm Brian Norcross with Luke Doris here at the WPLG Podcast Studio in Miami. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next week.